You're listening to 100 Words or Less with Ray Harkins. Happy 2022. Hopefully you had a great break. You were able to hang out with friends and family and eat a lot of food and do all the things you're supposed to do over break. I watched a lot of movies. I went to the mountains, got stuck in some snow, experienced some power outages. You know, what happens <laughs> in the mountains. But I am so excited that I could come Correct with this episode, first of the year, with Paige Hamilton from Helmet. I am incredibly excited that I get to talk to him, but then let's reflect. (laughs) Within the past month, I've been able to have Ken Andrews from Failure and Paige Hamilton from Helmet, like all in the same month on this show. This is so cool. And the reason he's coming on, he is uh, promoting a particular release from Helmet live and rare. So they recorded a set, I don't know what year it was, but at CBGB's and they just recently released it and it is uh, awesome. (laughs) It's so cool to hear it because, I mean, this is like CBGB's and they also have a live set from a set that they did in Australia at uh, Big Day Out, if I'm not mistaken, but um, super, super cool. And I, um, yeah, I just, I don't know, I never thought I'd be able to talk to Paige Hamilton, but here we are, and he was a pleasant chat. But uh, let's talk about some business stuff. People do email the show, 100wordspodcast at gmail.com, and I do get inquiries, I'm like, hey, how can I support the show? Simple. You can easily go into Spotify, toss some star ratings on there. That's a recent feature that they started to roll out. And then you can also do the same on Apple Podcasts. A lot of you did that over the holiday break, and I really appreciate that. So those are two ways that you can support. Also, ads that you hear on the show. Like I know that there are some times where you're just like, oh my gosh, like I don't want to hear any more about this particular product. But trust me, there's a reason that these companies are advertising on this particular show. And uh, when you buy the products or you go to the websites and you find out more about whatever it is that I'm talking about, that helps the show. So please do that. And I do appreciate that. I have some really cool stuff coming up sort of at related to podcasts, but I, I, nothing I can really talk about in particular, probably in the next like two weeks or so, I'll be able to tell you about a, uh, a extracurricular activity in regards to the podcast space that I have, uh, worked on and I'm really excited about it. So a little tease there, but I uh, just wanted to mention that anyways, let's talk about Paige Hamilton helmet, legendary band, uh, you know, whatever you want to call them, hard rock, metal, post hardcore, whatever it is. I mean, they've been there since the damn beginning, <laughs> When I say beginning, I mean, you know, I'm obviously exaggerating, but they are a very important band to uh, many of us in the independent music community, and Paige was a great chat. So we went all over the place. We talked about, you know, never really fitting in, and we talked about working with major labels, and then ultimately, why he still cares about this stuff. So fun times ahead. Like I said, check out the Helmet Live and Rare release that just came out. Uh, You can find it obviously on any streaming platform and uh, yeah, it's fun. So here's Paige Hamilton and I will talk to you at the end of the episode. first discovery was uh, I, I am a uh, punk and hardcore kid uh, from the you know 90s so to speak and yeah. uh, <laughs> 
Betty was my first uh, introduction, uh, just because I remember uh, my father was uh, participating in the uh, Columbia House uh, Records, you know, 12 CDs for a penny sort of scenario. And uh, I love that. (laughs) I know. So the biggest scam ever, but, you know, it exposed a lot of people to good music, I guess, or something. Yeah, I mean, I, I did. I actually uh, uh, had a funny story about that when I was a kid. I I, I did it, and I was twelve, and uh, several of the records were warped. So I um I wanted to get my my money back, and I wrote. I I had been learning about in grade school. Don't ask me why. Uh, the Better Business Bureau. So I contacted the Better Business Bureau. Wrote a letter. And um, it, I don't know what what I was thinking. I mean, I was 12, 1972, and I'm and I you know I'll be damned if my lawn mowing money was gonna go to uh, to warped records. So it was just like okay, I don't know, a very very funny um, funny thing. I felt compelled. Yeah, to- I'm gonna give them a bad review, and then their business will go under, and uh, you know I'll I'll be victorious. Columbia Records will never be the same. Yeah, no, absolutely not. Um, but I, so I remember, you know, just kind of rifling around my dad's CDs and, uh, you know, finding Betty. I enjoyed the fact that there was a, you know, white uh, underlay on the uh, the compact disc. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. Normally it's like clear or black. Um, and so I listened to it. And at that time I was uh, probably around 13 or so. And so music was still pretty much devoid of context. You either have stuff that's on the radio or stuff that's not on the radio. And I I couldn't really square it in my head because I liked the sort of groove aspect of it. But then I was also like, well, this isn't like metal or punk. Not like I can really articulate those things too much at 13. Yeah. But you clearly helmet has existed at an intersection of it's like, you guys are sort of metal, but not really. You guys are sort of rock because you know, you have a band and I'm sure that, existing in that uh you know undefinable world of heavy music uh has served you not not only that's a comfortable space for you to be in but has served you well um would you agree with that statement um yeah um uh, there the a couple of things come to mind you know the fact that we've played warp tour with emo bands and and quote-unquote punk rock bands ska punk or whatever and then we've done the metal shows like rock on ring rock on park in germany with you know, Kiss and Molly Crew and, um, you know, Sabbath and stuff. Uh, but it's, it's, that's the, you know, the good news. And the good news is that we, we haven't sort of pigeonholed, uh, you know, become pigeonholed. We are metal or we are, and that was uh, just something that never occurred to us ever to be, to be lumped in with, uh, you know, with a particular genre. The, the bad news is um, so many people are, um, really identify with their, their musical genre. Like I dress this way cause I like, you know, Robert Smith and fuck you. Cause you don't wear makeup and black clothes, you know? And, and I've, ex- we've experienced that. I mean, when we toured with Manson, there was a guy out there in full, like black trench coat, you know, white makeup, black, you know, blackened out eye- eyes, uh, pointing, pointing to his head and giving me dirty looks like say trying to mouth something that I believe he was saying you're small minded or something you're stupid or, or like, and uh, cause you know, here we are with Manson he's got a whole thing, you know, a whole shtick and a show and gets dressed up and does this thing. And we're here in our fucking, you know, garbage band pants and t-shirts and um, you know, sneakers. Uh, so, so it's, it's kind of funny. Some people, um, 
you know, can, can get past it and, and just listen to the music. And that's all I've ever asked and all I've ever tried to be <laughs> just right. like we're, yeah. we're, we're, we are, I am, I guarantee it 100% honest. I'm not trying to be something I'm not. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, for sure. Well, and plus, I mean, that idea of you guys being, you know, undefinable in regards to the genres that you participate in. It's one of those things you can, you know, go outside of your spectrum and people are, 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 you know, yes, they're reacting to it as you have illustrated where it's like, Oh, these guys aren't wearing makeup. They're idiots or vice versa yeah. where it's like, Oh, what do you mean? You're just wearing, you know, a band t-shirt and jeans or whatever. Um, but yeah, you kind of, you know, ebb, ebb in and out of scenes per se and not be so rigid. A friend uh, from many, many years ago who I'm still friendly with, but um, he's, he made a statement when Helmet kind of blew up in New York and sort of took the city over. And so that there was, some, you know, people were supportive and great. And also people were jealous and nasty. Um, and uh, and so many women I never even met that I apparently slept with, um, and, uh, including Courtney Love. She told my girlfriend, you know, 10 years ago, yeah, well, I banged him. And I'm like, where, where was I? Um, but somebody said, um, uh, you know, helmet, uh, it's a marketing concept. And I, and I was like, yeah, uh-huh. Yeah. I'm so clever that <laughs> I right. could create this vocabulary and came up with this whole idea of dressing like 12 year olds, you know, um, we didn't even have a cohesive look, you know, image look, you know, between the four of us. I mean, Peter wore, you know, peg leg jeans, you know, skinny jeans and beetle boots and had, you know, hair hanging over his, left eye or whatever and um, uh, Henry had dreadlocks when he joined the band and and then he got sick of it um, nine months in on the road because it was hot cut it off and he just wore a, you know a trucker cap and black socks and shorts and John and I always basically dressed like 12 year olds as I said in the liner notes it was there was literally not one thought given to our image or videos or anything it's just I, I don't know. I, I love, you know, listening to albums. I just love putting on um, what I had this kind of rule with myself. If I didn't have time to at least listen to a whole side of an album before I left the house, uh, like in college or whenever going to work or whatever, I, then I wouldn't listen to it because I have to hear a whole side of an album. And, and that's my activity right now. And I think I just, you know, some people appreciate that about us. It's just drop your drop the needle. It's not for everyone, man. I get that, you know, Right. Yeah. Uh, follow, follow along uh, as you <laughs> at your uh, at your leisure or at your displeasure. You'll you'll find yeah. out what you like about it. Um, yeah, sure. H- hitting on you specifically as a person, I know, you know, from a biographical information, I know you're you know born in Medford. And, you know, clearly that's like a very, you know, outdoorsy, rural ish community. Um <laughs> And, you know, I know you and your brother, obviously, you know, we're, we're palling around and, you know, exploring the outdoors and everything else. Uh, you know, what was the, I guess, the rest of your family structure like? Like, were mom and dad in the house? And did you have any, you know, other brothers and sisters? We were actually, my brother and I were born in Portland, Oregon. And, right. um, and mom and dad moved to, um, to Medford when, uh, where our sister was born. So there's just the three of us. And, and uh, we're still all very close. Um, and. Uh, yeah, they come to helmet shows. Um, they 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 never miss a helmet show. It, we, you know when we're in their area, um, so uh, it's great. It's really really fun. My brother is uh, gay and has two kids uh, with his husband, and they dress 
really uh, fastidiously. So they're in their helmet t-shirts tucked in. Uh, <laughs> I love it. Yeah. It's just, it's just great. You know, when we play with uh, guns and roses and they, uh, they were living in Portland at the time and they showed up, you know, like wearing matching t-shirts. <laughs> I just think it's, I just think it's so cute, you know? And then um, my sister's kids are all, except for one getting old enough to see us. So they've all been to shows and uh, I just have, the, you know, my favorite shows ever are with the family, you know, there, cause they're just, they're just so, you know, excited and, and, uh, and you know, plus you're seeing, you're, there's that comfort of seeing people you love and, um, you know, they're, uh, it, it doesn't, I could suck and they're still going to think I'm great, you know? Right. <laughs> well, that, I mean, that's really cool because you, you get this, um, you know, because the band has existed for a long time, you get this, you know, generational aspect of people, you know, not only your family, but, you know, people who attend the shows, they can, you know, literally bring their children to the show and be like, oh yeah, like here this is, and then have that, you know, have that mean something different to the kid as opposed to, you know, the other way around where it's like, oh, this is my dad or my mom's music and I hate this. And so it's really cool that you had that like sort of full circle experience. Seen a lot of that. We, um, I've kind of really first noticed it on the warp tour in 06 i believe that was and it was uh joan jet who's one year older than i am and i would uh we talked about that a few times like isn't it a trip we're seeing 60 year old school teachers and six-year-old kids you know and uh it's it's because we do these signings uh at various uh, cities around the the country and uh it was it's really cool it's you know it's it's uh nice when mom would come like she came to see us in the warp tour in Portland. Then I was out in the field and, you know, she has to be down front and she's frail, you know, survived breast cancer, bladder cancer, um, has two fake knees and a fake hip. And she's, you know, couldn't weigh, you know, more than more than a hundred pounds. And, uh, all these big dudes got around her up front. She had a little visor on, um, and her little tenny runners, and uh, they formed this big kind of circle around her to protect her. <laughs> so I was panicking. I'm like, Mom, what are you doing? Uh, but she she just refused to go. You know, she wanted to be right up front. <laughs> so cool. That's yeah. That, well, yeah, that is very, uh, that's a very wholesome, wholesome experience where, you know, your parents are and obviously all your siblings and their families are so supportive over that. That's really cool. Yeah, it's cool. And she's a, my mom was a great testament to, um, you know, the, 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 the human, human, human will spirit. She, she, um, didn't want to miss out on anything. And she was uh, badly crippled and, and had a hard time getting around and she would never complain about it. Never. She just didn't want to miss out. And I'd be like, mom, the, the mountain biking's not happening. Sorry. You know, it's like, <laughs> like, well, is it steep? I'm like, yes. Yeah. It's steep. And it's like, you know, the trip that, that I broke my collarbone on, you know? And so, uh, she just didn't want to miss anything. And, and, um, I think it's really, really, it was really sweet, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I know your kind of your personality and what you project out there, you've always struck me as a, you know, outgoing person where, um, you know, like, yes, there's a element of intimidation because it's like, Oh, like, you know, Paige is screaming into a microphone and stuff like that. Um, has, uh, I guess that outgoing nature always been kind of part of you or has that sort of ebbed and flowed over time? Um, I have, I can be ex extremely, um, uh, nervous and, and neurotic. And, uh, you know, when the pandemic hit, I just moved into my new place in Glendale and, um, I was 
trying to go to the store at like one in the morning so there wouldn't be humans around because I was so nervous. You know, it was a new thing, something that I'm new to. If I'm, I don't do. People have asked me to do jam sessions, and I and I, I just don't because I don't know them, and I don't want to. Um, I like playing music that I've worked on. You know, either Helmet or my jazz stuff, or playing with Glenn Branca, or doing the you know the Leonard Bernstein concert with the Brit you know, uh, festival orchestra or whatever stuff, the music that I've worked on and feel comfortable with. So that I have a few, you know, I guess idiosyncrasies. And, uh, but once I, um, I always find once I, you know, the door opens, I'm, I feel pretty comfortable, um, for the most part. And, and when you're on stage, it's a, there's, there's kind of an adrenaline thing that takes over and, and, uh, you get to play this music that you wrote and play and sing this music that you wrote. And so that, kind of puts you in a different um a different state i mean before the show i'm i'm awful because I, I i get really nervous even though i've done 3500 shows or whatever and um i don't want to talk to anybody and i don't want to so i just like have my time to myself and um and then get on get on stage um you know so there's a there's a time kind of there seems to be like a time period where i'm quite you know quite uh so socially capable and then there's a time period where i'm, I'm completely inept um <laughs> yeah you're like give me give me an hour before the show just please don't yeah. talk to me because i will probably be horrifically awkward or or i just yeah just leave that alone yeah i i have felt bad before um you know and and i i, I apologize but i at the time everything my whole being everything is geared towards um performing and you know at a high level and this music is physically and you know exhausting obviously um and we were doing 30 song sets on the 30 by 30 by 30 tour so um you know i it, it takes a lot of concentration and focus and um but yeah i think i think you know people describe me as outgoing you know, sure yeah it's a yeah that's you that's that that's you as a person yeah um, you know, I, I know a lot of your entry points in regards to music, uh, you know, like ACDC, classic rock. And, you know, I, I definitely like the story you tell in regards to, you know, the uh, listening to, um, you know, the, the the first song on the radio that you started to like feely, you know, feel like emotionally attached to and then get transported away and, you know, remove your car sickness and stuff like that. But Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Horse with course with no name exactly exactly yeah. I, I think that's a very you know uh, charming story and the only reason i'm sort of you know glossing over it is just the idea that like you know yeah. as you started to go further down the rabbit hole and you've always had a really diverse music taste when did you start to be able to kind of place music uh you know uh, scenes in context where it's like you started to understand that like okay assigning to you know amrep like we are being a part of this you know whatever dirty rock whatever label you know noise rock whatever you want to put it on yeah. it when did you start to kind of see the more diy aspect of uh you know the scenes as it were um the 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 marriage with um amrep was perfect um we had we had sent we had done our cassette uh, demo tapes uh, it was um, Born Annoying Rumble, Shirley MacLaine, and Geisha to Go that we recorded at Don Fury's. Um, and I just wrote letters. We had, there was a magazine called Rock Pool at the time, and you could find, look up the indie labels. And so friends that worked in the indie rock world at Rock Pool or CMJ or whatever would say, this might, this would be a good label for you guys. So I think we sent stuff to SST, I know Sub Pop, uh, Homestead um and uh twin tone and at twin tone 
um, the gr- woman that got, uh, I, I phoned these people and I said, hi, I'm Paige Hamilton. I have this band. I'm sending you this cassette tape um, of my new band. We want to put a record out. And um, so the woman at Twin Tone, her name is Jill Faunus. Um, she, because I had phoned and was polite and she, she felt guilty. She listened to it. She's like, this is really cool, but it's way too aggressive for Twin Tone. But Uh, you know, as good fortune would have it, Tom Hazelmeyer was under the twin tone umbrella with AMREP. So he, so she walked down the hall after several listens and said, I think you're going to dig this. And we got a call from him. Um, And and that just made perfect sense. You know, uh, Sub Pop, uh, Pavit and Poneman's, they said, you know, this is really cool stuff. We've been looking for something to kind of eclipse or I forget how they worded it. They kind of eclipsed the sub pop sound. Like they were very known for having 70s retro kind of, you know, that grunge thing came out of the Stooges, uh, you know, primarily the Stooges, but MC5, that world. And they were, you know, quote unquote, looking for something to bust out of that box. At at the end of the day, they they ended up just deciding to stay in the box um, and, and, and release some great records, you know, between Nirvana and, um, you know, Soundgarden and, and obviously, um, uh, you know, Love Battery and Cat Butt and, you know, Fluid. There were some, you know, some interesting things, but but it was less aggressive, I guess. And uh, uh, that that just uh, with Hazelmeyer, he really likes noisy, aggressive stuff. And so I think um, that that appealed to him. He said, I want to put out a seven inch with the, the, the uh, of Born Annoying and the B side would be Rumble. And he said, here's my deal. You get 500 singles, I think. Uh, And that's the deal. And I was like, sounds good. Happy New Year. You know what this is. This is a rockabilia ad. And that's not just because I love this company, but because they are an incredible purveyor of all things merchandise when it comes to your favorite bands and all officially licensed. So first and foremost, use this code 100 words or less that gets you 10% off your order and it shows them that you like this podcast. And I appreciate that. They appreciate it. Everybody appreciates it. Go to the website, find all of your favorite stuff there. I understand we're past the gift giving season, but that doesn't mean that you can't get something just as a total surprise for anybody in your life. They have over half a million items. It ships to you lickety split. They are the best. <laughs> I love ordering from them. It's probably honestly once every uh, you know month or so, um, I, I go to their website, I poke around, I find some items and I'm like, oh, cool. Here we go. This is something that I didn't think that I needed, but I definitely do. So rockabilly.com, 100 words or less, 10% off, and you will love what they have. So thank you, Rockabilia, and here's to a awesome 2022 of more merch in people's closets. I, I know because you were, you know, knocking on the doors of these labels and stuff, you relatively understood the scenes that they were kind kind of, you know, playing a part of. And like we mentioned previously, you know, Helmet didn't really sit at the intersection of anything. Um, so how, how were you kind of, I guess, um, you know, sort of tapping into these, like, okay, I understand, like, this is kind of the hardcore scene and, like, this is the punk scene. Or were you just kind of like, well, I, I recognize them, but I don't necessarily, um, I guess, want to be a part of it and not in a bad way or an egotistical way? Yeah, I, I was not a, a snob about, you know, any any of it, like, oh, this is not cool or that's not cool. I mean, I would, my bandmates would go crazy because I do an interview and they're like, what are you listening to right now? And I'm like, dance on your knees or hollow notes. And they're like, oh, dude, hollow notes. <laughs> 
And I'm like, what are you talking about? That's such a cool song. And then it goes into Added Touch. And, um, you know, so I just like, I just like music. And then the hardcore people are like, you guys are kind of post-hardcore, New York hardcore. And I didn't know a damn single hardcore band until I stand your got in the band and he played me stuff. And I go, Oh, this is cool, man. I like sick of it all. I like agnostic front. There was, you know, there were some really cool things happening, but it wasn't like, I, I didn't feel like we had to, 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 to walk in step with any, um, with any kind of, you know, scene. And we always kind of felt like outsiders. I mean, Stanier was like, Stanier said something funny once he goes, you know, we don't really, fit into any of this he goes people can can not like us but nobody can say we suck <laughs> because right. we were we were good you know we were good for what we were and are and we weren't trying to be something else i remember a funny meeting um my i can't remember who hooked me up i think renee kukuro who uh, was married to peter uh, Mangaday and she worked at Rockpool. She's the one that paid for the ad in the Village Voice for me because I didn't have you know two nickels to rub together to audition drummers. Um, and she said, "I know this girl Claudia. I want to say, not God. I'm thinking Derek Schulman, Claudia. Ah, I want to say Schulman. I can't. Any at Capitol Records. And I remember walking in there with my <laughs> demo tape, and I saw these. There, it was Poison. These big giant Poison." photos up front and I'm like and that was absolutely not up my alley and 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 I'm he might have been a little snotty about that I didn't say anything but I go that music is not uh, to me it was, that music is disingenuous to me it doesn't mean that they're not good and they can sing and write and play but for me it was about the about the three ring circus and we were not about that we just I just it was, it was songs but uh Claudia the, the Cocteau Twins manager was in the office um, at the time and she played the stuff. And I just remember the looks on their faces <laughs> when Born Annoying came on. And uh, Ray, the guy's name was Ray. I can't remember his last name, but he said, uh, he goes, this is some really interesting guitar stuff. What, what, I don't know what it is, though. You know, what, what, what is this? And I go, just helmet, you know, and uh, it's it was it was pretty it's pretty funny to see people's you know responses um but uh well and, and i think it, it, I, ironically i worked with the singer from the cocteau twins on um, a movie called uh, in dreams she's amazing i think it's elizabeth frazier right i think so yeah 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 she, i love her i love cocteau twins uh but you know i think we're just too much for for um for old ray Right. Well, in I think especially too when again you're not as like easily identified as like okay you you know like you came from this scene in particular and like I you know a thread I was going to pull is what you were talking about where regardless of if you like us or not you can't say we suck because like we put a lot of work into you know practice and like the actual proficiency at our instruments and it seems like you have always had that working class approach to the way that, you know, you write music and yes, we got to rehearse three times a week and that sort of stuff. Um, was that just always kind of like hardwired in you? Like, because you kind of came from that world of not necessarily being attached to a scene, but just being like, Oh, I like music. So I want to play it all the time. Is that right? Or did it just kind of like, no, this is what I know. So we got to practice three times a week. Yeah. It's kind of comes, comes directly from my father and mother. They, um, they, I wanted a bike when I was uh, nine, I think, 
I wanted I really wanted this banana seat red uh, Schwinn stingray. And my dad's like, all right, well, we better get you a job. Um, and my dad could have given me, give me it was twenty dollars. Uh, he could have given me twenty dollars at the time, but he said he took he bought me a golf cap up at the, the, the golf course in town, the main golf course, and dropped me in the caddy shack and said, All right, good luck. And uh, I was this, the runt, the smallest guy. So I was the last one hired, but I ended up get, getting this great couple, Elmer and Dolores Haft. And uh, Katie, Katie, it was a tournament, caddy for him, and then I'd caddy for her. I liked caddying for him better because he would buy me a burger at the turn. Um, and, uh, she, you know, and he would tip me better. So it was like four bucks or something for 18 holes. And um, I just learned that if you want something, uh, if you want it, then you have to, you know, set goals and you have to um, organize your, you know, your thoughts and your practice habits. And that's, I was fortunate when I was uh, started music school to, to meet a guy, Gary Hagberg, who wrote the guitar compendium, three volumes with Howard, the late great Howard Roberts. Um, and so did a couple of clinics with Howard, uh, University of Oregon. And then uh, uh, Gary was my private uh, teacher for jazz. I had a separate teacher for classical guitar that Gary found for me. Um, and it, there's a whole system and it's what I, I've been during the pandemic. I finally um, acquiesced and I've been doing the guitar lessons and, and, uh, and I, all this stuff that I was taught and worked towards um, has come in uh, really handy. I mean, in fact, I'm just was I'm texting today with a guitarist in the band in Boise, who's one of my students and I'm, I produced a song for them uh, in my home studio and I'm flying out there to do an album um, next week. So um, it's just those those work habits have served me well. I think uh, um, I taught many of my friends that are rock stars and uh, seem, you know, I'm not saying all of them, but many of them seem really miserable. They seem to have lost their uh, interest in music um, and they don't have a, a, a foundation kind of, you know, musical foundation. And I have something that I can do every single day um, to keep me from, you know, <laughs> you know, going absolutely bonkers. Um, right. And so that I think is, you apply that to helmet. We, um, we rehearsed religiously three days a week. If you're, if your you know, sister was in town or your parents or the holidays were coming up, it didn't matter. We rehearsed three days a week and you could bring them to rehearsal. Um, you know, and there were, there were instances where we'd go away for the holidays or whatever and get a break. But other than that, we rehearsed three days a week and we got good and we were we knew we were better than the bands playing cbs in the bands in new york um i mean we felt that way we just felt like there's you know we're tight every you know i was here you know you're so tight <laughs> <laughs> sure yeah like you got you, you guys must practice seven days a week and you're like not exactly but pretty close <laughs> yeah yeah it's pretty it's pretty funny it's like you guys are so tight like, yep that's that's part of the you that's know what we're going part- for part of the process yeah Yeah. so if you're playing if you're playing you know like seven seven four guitar part against a four four drum part you gotta you gotta be perfectly in time or it's gonna suck right right (laughs) no guesswork yeah exactly and kind of along those same lines where you know as you started to progress as a band in regards to you know putting stuff out in amrap and you know getting that notoriety enough to where you guys obviously were able to parlay that into, you know, major label interest and, you know, signing with Interscope and, you know, at that juncture where you guys, you know, first started to plug yourselves into that system, 
you know, the concept of, of selling out wasn't as pervasive as it was more. So, you know, the, in whatever they mid nineties, we'll call it. Um, did you, did you guys feel, I guess, any blowback in regards to people being like, Oh man, dude, helmets, like totally, totally selling out because, you know, even though sonically you just continued down the path that you were, you know, kind of going on, except you just had more, um, resources applied to it. Did you guys get that feedback at all? Or was that just like, sometimes, uh, sometimes, but that's natural. You know, um, it's, somebody that got into you on day one is, you know, by day three is moved on. And, and if you do something that did, they, they, you know, you didn't do on day one, they're bummed. Um, uh, Kirk from Flipside, who did the photos for the, uh, the all the artwork for the, uh, the live um, album, the live CBGBs and live big day out shows that we put out. I knew he would have great photos and, but I'll never forget. He worked at uh, a flip side and had us on the cover and you know helmet mania has arrived all this stuff and by the time we got to long beach we um we were playing we were playing songs for meantime and he's and so it was like we had born annoying rumble strap it on that was what we had and then meantime was we were in the process i believe of working on it and he uh, his review was i wanted uh i wanted a helmet i got a bonnet <laughs> i'll never forget <laughs> Cause we, cause meantime was too soft. I'm like, okay, yeah, that's a, so, I mean, that kind of shit cracks me up because that is 100% uh, comes from his perception, his um, discovery and uh, you know, spreading the word. And it's, he's, he's imposing his, you know, aesthetic rather than just, taking the music at face value, dropping the needle. Is this music good or is it bad? It's good. Um, but I don't like it. Okay. I mean, Toto is good. I don't personally like it. My bandmates listen to it and I don't know. It doesn't float my boat. Journey is good. You know, uh, I'm Steve Perry journey in college. We listened to the old journey. And I, I love that. Right. Uh, but they're really good. I mean, badass players, incredible singer. It doesn't flow my boat, man. I don't know why. I just, it doesn't, I don't, my, I had an argument with Scott from, from uh, local age, you know, several beers into a night in New York city, we were hanging out and, and, and I was just like foreigner, not, not my, not my thing, man. He's like, Oh, you're crazy. They're incredible. As great as, like, I know they're really good, but it's, it doesn't, it doesn't work for me somehow. You know what I mean? I don't know. I, I, it's, I'm not trying to be, you know, contentious or cool or anything. It's just some things, some things just don't, you know, get some people. And that's absolutely the case with us. You know, um, I'd always used to joke, you know, well, God, if everybody loved everything, Michael Jackson would have sold, you know, 10 hundred billion records instead of only 400 million or whatever he sold, you know, and it's like, some people don't like Michael Jackson, you know, and some people don't like the Beatles. I, I have a hiking partner. She's like, I don't get the Beatles. And I'm like, what? <laughs> right. It's funny. It's really funny. You know, so I don't take it personally anymore. You know, back then, what I do take personally is when, when uh, uh, critics, journalists, uh, people talk shit about you or behind your back or in, People I know that I'm friends with, and I won't divulge any names, have said things like, you know, that were that were hurtful. And, 
you know, the marketing, we're, we're just a marketing concept or I'm a dilettante or um, I have, I'm really handsome, but what was the one? I'm really handsome, um, but music's like lenders bagels or something. I don't know, some shit, you know, just like really like these obnoxious, you know, com- you know comments. And, and uh, you, you know, when I was just starting out, that stuff would hurt me because I was literally like like the 12 year old school of rock student so excited about music and that we were playing we started with one fan and then we were playing roseland ballroom you know that we were building this thing doing music that we all loved and were proud of and um and it was our it was our music it wasn't we weren't trying to be sonic youth we loved sonic youth we weren't trying to be live skull or rat rat r or blue oyster cult or uh, any other New York bands, you know, we were, we were just, just doing our thing. And that's, um, some people ha- really hate that. It's, it's weird. Like really, really bothers some people. You know? Right. Yeah. Well, cause I mean, again, when it's like, when you're not easy to classify, there's that sort of square peg round hole scenario where people are like, yeah, but this doesn't like fit. It's like, well, not everything has to. So yeah, I totally yeah. get that. Especially from a critical perspective, what you're talking about. The guy that bashed me and said something about me being handsome also bashed uh, uh, John Spencer uh, in P- Pussy Galore for being, t- you know, something yeah. about we were too <laughs> handsome. And I was like, and that John is a friend of mine. And, you know, that kind of shit could crack us up, you know. Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> um I know uh, kind of, you know, from a business perspective, like as you, you know, started to navigate the world of understanding like, oh, wow, we're getting play, you know, paid $200 to play a show and we're selling merch and I have to worry about contracts. I know you really threw yourself into the business aspect of it, of, um, you know, reading Donald Passman's book, like every yeah. you know, good, good, good musician does at some point to be like, what the hell's publishing? What does this mean? Yeah, exactly. Um, Right. Did you, um, I guess, did you like going into that and like that business aspect of it? Or is that just kind of like a quote unquote necessary evil that you have to know? Yeah, I don't like it at all. I, 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 um, my manager at the time, David Ayers was, was really great. Um, we were really close. Um, and I talked to him daily several times for, for, you know, minutes and, and, hours and we and he was the one that said you got to know what the hell's going on so your head's not up your ass and um so i did i got that he gave me the passman book and um i I tried to learn as much as i could at the end of the day i just want to sing and um sing and write and play um and and so and i've been burned really badly um you know war con people bob chaparty um is a liar um and they really burned burned me um and, you know, sold me a bill of goods that was complete bullshit. Kevin Lyman, to his credit, tried to um, make it up. He took me out to lunch and gave me, I think, 2,500 bucks out of the uh, 58,000 they owed me. Um, and uh, which obviously, you know, but at least he was man enough to explain to me what happened. And I, I don't hold him personally responsible. Um, but, uh, and other people were, were, you know, really good. Jimmy, Iveen, um, Tom Wally, Ted field, they came to the table and they were like, we love what you guys do. We're going to, we're going to push the hell out of it. And they did on meantime. And by the time, two years later, by the time Betty came out, the label was so already so goddamn big. They were just like any other, uh, major label machine. And they did a, uh, in my opinion, a, a 
a crap job on the on this uh, records after that. Um, it, it, I'm you know I guess I should take the blame because I didn't write a hit, <laughs> but, but I I can't because those songs Wilma's Rainbow and Milk Toast and you know I know those are some of our most popular songs that people absolutely love and they're good songs and um and they're they're you know they're not meantime jimmy said i was i thought there'd be you know more uh, like unsung and i'm like i wrote that you know so i'm not writing it again and uh, right. i know i'm friendly with the lincoln park guys and they were like we did our first record sold whatever it was six million eight million and so we just wanted to do the exact same thing again and so they did they 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 you know the next single i guess you could play it simultaneously with the you know, first one and that was but that was one of their goals. And that's, that's a different approach. My approach is I'm a, I, I'm a jazz wannabe. I even have a group called jazz wannabes with my best friend in New York, um, Anthony Truglio. And I still try to improvise within the context of our helmets modal music. And I'm still trying to push, push forward sonically and harmonically and rhythmically and do something, um, you know, different every time. So, right. with, you know, utilizing the vocabulary that I established, you know? Yeah. Right. Right. With it. Yeah. Within reason. Right. I totally yeah. get that. Yeah. It, 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 something else that I, I always have found interesting about helmets trajectory and, you know, kind of going back to the theme of you guys existing, you know, outside of a particular scene, it, it like you mentioned with the post hardcore explosion of New York, you know, bands like orange nine and quicksand and everything like that you guys, you know, were, had a lot of sonic similarities to them. And, you know, those bands obviously signed with majors and I know you were friends with them because you were playing shows with them and, you know, existing alongside of the same musical trajectory. Um, But since Helmet was not specifically like, you know, you guys weren't, you know, on the Lower East Side hanging out at, you know, CBGBs, you know, like hardcore kids. uh, Was there any sort of like uh, schism there between like, oh, like Helmet's cool, but like, you know, they're not playing the cool guy shows or whatever. Or is that me just kind of, you know, like reading too much into that? You mean by the time we outgrew CBs, you mean? Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, as you guys were, you know, kind of, especially too, because you had gone through, like, you know, you signed to a major before, obviously all of those bands did and stuff like that. Yeah. um, Was there? Yeah, I I don't, I don't know. I don't think I was oblivious. I mean, I just went about my business and went out to shows and still, you know, CBs was our living room, you know, it's two blocks from my apartment. And um, so I'd see like, you know, Kim and Thurston, Lee, there i'd see you know uh frank black and kim you know when they were in town i'd see you know people we would see these was a place we could hang and have beers and and see and see music so it was i didn't i didn't shy away uh shy away from it there was another place that we all hung out i you know uh, max fish that was kind of the rocker place like jim jim thurwell from fetus and Yao from jesus Lizard when, when he was in town to record with us and um uh i in fact ran into gibby um uh, Gibby there one night when they were they were playing. I said, "What are you doing in town?" He's like, "Oh, we're playing up at Roseland. You want to come?" And so I said, "Yeah." And um, Scott Weiland, the singer from Stone Temple Pilots, was in his little circle there. And I didn't really know the guy, or their you know I didn't know much about their music. And um, so I went and I saw them for a little bit. And the, they were opening for the Buttholes, and um, there were little there were places that we hung out that were you know within blocks of my apartment. So that was my, just that was just my neighborhood, and. Right. Um, that's where we all, uh, Henry lived a couple blocks away, John and I used to live together, um, which is hilarious. 
um, he passed out drunk to Iron Maiden and, and he slept on a loft bed and I couldn't, you know, get to him, climb up there to turn the turn this boom box off. So I'd be yelling and punching him like, turn the fucking music off. Right. <laughs> He'd just be out. Uh super thin walls and those shitty tenement buildings. But um uh yeah, uh, Peter he he was on the west side. He was in the West Village because uh, he he lived with Renee, if I remember correctly. Um, and um, so we, uh, you know, we would we, uh, hang out. You know, sometimes like um, when we got started to get big, and I got into stupid drugs and stuff. Uh, Henry uh, John just never did. They wouldn't touch the stuff, and I was really uh, impressed and proud of them for uh, and admi- and I admired them for that because I was I was uh, I'm an addictive compulsive uh person and i had a you know very hard time saying no so did some did stupid stuff um that fortunately didn't get me killed sure sure well yeah i mean it definitely sucked a lot of people down a very deep dark hole but yeah i know it's good that um yeah you didn't you were able to pull yourself back from that yeah we lost some friends you know uh yeah it was, yeah it's rough you know from, um uh, uh, charlie from um Unsane and uh, my a good friend Sean from um, Surgery. I was actually going to produce the next Surgery album because um, they had signed with our friend Al at Atlantic Records, and um, he, he was wanted to talk to me. So I actually met with the band uh, and you know discussed uh, you know discussed kind of what I thought would be a great thing for them to do. You know, and um, I think it would have been a really cool record. And then Sean passed, so. That's that was, you know, he had uh, asthma and he was doing things he shouldn't have been doing, you know, and um, so that's what what took him. But um, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah it's a, it, it's definitely tough. Um, and, and kind of on that same tip, the you know the the touring mechanism, like once that starts to become you know a part and parcel of what a band needs to do to promote themselves, especially within you know the rock, hardcore, punk world. Um, you know, how as touring kind of evolved for you had you always taken to it like a fish to water because it seems like you enjoy that exploration aspect of you know being in different cities each day obviously gives you that um or you know or did it ever at certain points kind of feel like the the quote-unquote job of like oh i i wish i could like be in one spot for a little bit longer um you know how has that kind of evolved with you over time when um, when I was a kid, somebody came to our house and stayed in at our old house in Oregon when Sis was a baby. So say I was seven years old, somebody had left one of those cheap guitar cases, one of those cardboard kind of guitar cases. I can't remember why, like a babysitter or something. And um, I, I used to sleepwalk. And I, one night I picked up the case and I opened the front door and I walked out of the house with this guitar case. Um, I, I remember it. It's one of those weird memories i have is dad waking me up he kind of followed followed me out waking me up somewhere between the driveway and the sidewalk and um i was ready to go on the road from the fucking second i was born and i (laughs) i i love it and i i could live on the road Um, i love my place i love my restaurants i love you know my bed all those things are comfortable and nice and cozy but I miss the road. It's been, it'll be two years, December 1st, since, since we played shows and, um, around December 1st. Um, and, uh, I, I just, I feel like it's, um, 
I told the guys, and then we started rehearsing because we had these shows that were just postponed again with System of a Down and Corn and uh, Russian Circles. And uh, it felt so good to get back in, you know, my my little world, my zone. You know, it's like my amps are behind me. My I've, uh, you know, my pedals and my microphones and my kind of little world, you know, and um, guitars. And um, there's something because there's something that, you know, different that's going to happen every time you play um a show you know and you i've learned it was frustrating early on um when we started to play bigger places and i didn't know how to how to make it sound like it did at cds because cds sounded so damn good um and a small stage like the pyramid club or even lismar lounge or you know louderbacks in brooklyn our first ever show we you could figure out a way to dial it in because we're talking about you know a, a relatively small low stage about three, four feet high. Um, and you can, you have control, but as we started playing bigger places and here's a cement stage, here's a hollowed out wood stage, here's a carpeted stage. Here's a, you know, um, it was, so it was, uh, this process and, um, to kind of figure out how to, how to be consistently happy. Um, so, and, and it's, I achieved it probably, I don't know what year 90, um, Certainly by 96, when I started playing the Fryettes, um, I, you know, I had those amps were so consistent. Um, the, the VHT at the time, and he, and he changed the name to his last name, his company, but um, that, you know, and then I learned, you know, to when we go to South America, I would take my Fryette with me and it was just a pain in the ass because they'd, they'd have me take the tubes out and take the feet off and take all this, you know, because it weighed too much, blah, blah, blah. So, I uh, started just saying, you know, I'm going to use Marshall and, and you, you learn to kind of figure out how to make it sound like you, you know, and um, uh, Billy Gibbons said a great thing to me once when I cut, we, I was, got to hang out with him. We played a festival with him and uh, I said, I'm really surprised to see you playing a late model Telecaster through this Digitech guitar effects processor. Um, really, it's like not what you think for Billy Gibbons. And he's like, you know, Paige, it's all in the hands. And I go, yep, you're right. That's right. <laughs> You, you just, as you get better and better, you learn to, to control and get, get your sound, you know, and that's, that's really important, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Right. Then that's what, you know, people will ultimately follow you, you know, regardless of your creative direction, be like, well, no matter what, like there's probably elements of this person's art that I will enjoy. So yeah, I totally hear what you're saying. Um, two last things I want to hit on was, uh, you know, and this is a, a very random question, but uh, one, one, one that I'm curious about where, I, I obviously appearing on the Crow soundtrack and then, you know, your House of Pain collaboration. Both of those are, you know, very seminal and legendary, you know, uh, not only appearances, but collaborations, you know, putting you on the spot here. What do you think, like, uh, I guess, you know, push the band forward to, uh, you know, greater heights, newer audiences or whatever? Because both of those are, are, like I said, pretty sort of legendary and seminal. Uh, I'm sure they obviously did different things for the band, but, um, you know, do you, do you reflect on one of those being kind of like, well, this actually, you know, put us up to be able to play in front of more people or, you know, this increased our exposure exponentially here. Um, any of that resonate with you? I don't, I don't have a sense of, of, uh, how things we've done have affected us as far as like popularity or sales or, you know, sure. increasing audience or anything like, cause we just were in it, you know, and 
uh, we, we, we made some uh, smart choices and some, you know, uh, choices that, you know, I was, I, we, we got offered a McDonald's commercial and I was like, hell no, I was a vegetarian for, you know, 20 years with my ex-wife and I'm not anymore, but, uh, and, uh, I look back and I go, yeah, you know, big deal McDonald's. All right. You know, but they, I mean, and I, you know, it's, I, I was very purist about it and, and thought I'm not doing commercials. I'm not doing, you know, and, um, then, then after the band broke up, I got offered a rallies checkers commercial and, uh, the artist was Eon flux. I think he's called, um, and it was a blast. I had a really fun time. Brought my friend Matt Flynn, who's uh, played. He was my drummer in Gandhi. Um, actually named the band and uh, plays drums in Maroon Five now. He played with B52s, whatever. And um, I dragged him into the studio in New York. And uh, Eric Sanko, actually, uh, his brother Anton recorded it. Um, uh, Eric's a bass, bassist uh, from Skeleton Key and Lounge Lizards, and a dear friend of mine. Um, but yeah, I mean. I don't, you know, that we, they ask us to be in the crow and we turned that down, uh, cause, 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 uh, scheduling and, um, the, the I believe they, they got a thrill killed cult was the band that yep. they, that took our place. And, um, they, I think if I'm not mistaken, it was a scene that Brandon was, was accidentally killed in, uh, which, would have scarred me for life. It already was an awful, um, an awful thing. Um, you know, this young, amazing, you know, martial artist, beautiful human being to be, you know, take, have his life taken was, was, uh, really crushing. Um, and, uh, I, you know, I thought it was a cool movie. I dug it. Um, and we had fun, uh, doing the video, uh, and, uh, Alex winter, um, directed it and he's a, has a great vision. Um, yeah. I think really good video director um, and just had a, has a sense of every aspect of filmmaking, you know? Um, and that was, it was a, it was a great thing to be part of. Um, and we still play the song. Um, I, right. I love, I love playing the song. Uh, I think I had two different spellings, one for the Crow soundtrack and one for the Betty album, but I'm not sure which is which I spell it with a Q now. Right. No, it it is funny because it's like, I, I just as a nerd, I did notice that where I was like, oh, okay. Like, of course, yeah, you want to differentiate between the two, but like, yeah, I just, yeah. I, it's a funny nod. Yeah, it was a good, um, I, I learned some things from Butch. We recorded that with Butch. Um, he's the one that came and said, why don't we have the guitar drop out here and just go down to the bass and then um, do this kind of Pink Floyd thing with your vocal. And I was like, cool. Sure, man. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and it's a signature part of the tune now. And I use a green bullet mic to pull it off live for that. And I love that. And it's, it got me thinking as a, um, as a, you know, as a songwriter and as a producer, you know, to experimenting and trying different things out. And uh, Butch is really great that way, in that way. And very, um, easy to work, you know, just easy to work with. I loved, loved working with him. Right. And, and so I, I guess that the house of pain collaboration, I know that that's very like, you know, I, I could close my eyes and, and think of, you know, a variety of sort of, you know, very nineties things. And like, there's nothing more nineties than, you know, th that collaboration and obviously the whole, you know, rap and rock influence and stuff like that. Yeah. <laughs> Was, did you, um, you know, I guess, did you find you guys, cause the idea behind those things was clearly where it's like, okay, 
well, the rap guys are going to be exposed to the rock audience and then vice versa. Uh, did you, I guess, notice that happening where people that never would have heard Helmet are hearing it because of their affinity for House of Pain? Oh, no doubt. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm sure of it. We, um, Stan, you're turning me on to, to uh, some cool rap stuff. And, and, um, and uh, then we met um, T-Ray because he'd done some cool remixes uh, of The uh, Victim. And he did, uh, he worked, he co-produced Betty um but the uh you know so i was li- you know listening to krs1 and boogie down and um you know eric b and rakim and farside and stuff like that and i love the music um I, there's so much great music and uh there's there's a lot of crap in it like in any other genre genre as well uh but the, the great stuff is is incredible and so i thought house of pain was cool i love his voice um i'm still still friendly with danny um he lives in tulsa and i got to hang out with him a little bit last time we were down there um the 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 experience was interesting because um i i was just telling this story to someone today actually the uh uh oh the the guitarist from the rap rock band i'm producing um about songwriting credits because um that i essentially wrote that song and uh, obviously, Stanier had a huge part in coming up with his, the drum bit. But I, we, we got in the studio with um, uh, DJ Lee, um, uh, Danny, Eric, myself, uh, John Henry, and Rob Echevarria was in the band at the time. And then I think their manager and Warren Tears and, and everybody. So we got set up, got sounds, and everybody just looked at me and uh, said, all right, what are we doing? And um, I said, we're writing a song together, right? <laughs> uh, everybody's like, yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, just silence. Okay. Let's go. Well, anybody have an idea? And, and I just, and nobody, everybody just kind of kept staring at me. So I was like, well, I have this really great riff I was saving for a helmet song. And so I, you know, pulled it out and everybody, and obviously it's a really great riff. I was like, how about this? And they were like, fuck. Um, and then, yeah, then I, you know, came up with the double time thing for the chorus and then those hits, those bah, da, 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 da. Um, and, and, you know, Stanier was just a dream to work with. I mean, just incredible. And uh, obviously Henry picked stuff up quickly and um, it, it happened really quickly. Um, we gave them the tracks we went on the road. Um, Eric and I, uh, Everlast, talked about um, lyrical content, and I said, "I, I said, I have this. I've uh, been kind of sketching notes. This, this idea of people um, uh, making themselves victims, feeling victimized. People like, um, you know, the woe is me uh, sect. You know, people that really have no reason to complain." <laughs> and so I. Uh, um, he goes, that works great with what I'm thinking. So when I got to LA, um, we were on the road and we had an afternoon and I popped in and I wrote the lyrics in the studio. The experience is funny because we work at the studio and then we take breaks or whatever, but um, they had a massive bag of weed and they had porno movies going um, in the, in the, the, the picture between the speakers in the control room. And I was like, this is kind of distracting. <laughs> like I, I, uh, just a very, very different way to work. Um, and, uh, but yeah, they did, I thought they did a, a cool job, um, you know, with the slowing the riff down and, and, uh, um, 
you know, his rap was great. You know, it was a, it turned out to be really cool. I've heard he repeated some of the lyrics because uh, I have uh, the Jerky Boys soundtrack mm-hmm. that we were on. Uh, we did this Black Sabbath cover, and the House of Pain song came on. And I go, he says that same the same lines in the Just Another Victim, right? Uh, which is which is cool, you know. I mean, it's it's hard to to have you know be a, a, a bottomless pit of you know lyrical ideas, but yeah, it was yeah. really fun. It was the lead. Uh, obviously, it was strong. It was the lead track on the album, and it went gold. So mm-hmm. that was. Yeah. Apparently the world world enjoyed that. So right, right, and it, it's cool because you know there are clearly um, you know uh, used uh, CD bins across the country that can you know establish the fact that there's a lot of those collaborations that didn't work out or fell flat. But like you know that definitely is one that peaks its head above and being like, oh yeah, yeah. this this can happen. It's like yeah, you can you know you can point to you know Public Enemy and Aerosmith and like these other ones and yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, they um I'm trying to think why our track was a little different. Uh, we were the one of the first uh us and House of Pain were a couple of the first bands that got approached. So they changed after we'd already recorded done it some somehow they kind of changed the format like they put the bands together I think and um and uh, you know ours was kind of had the the two parts representing both bands because just because of the nature of them being in LA and we were in New York. Um, so, uh, but yeah, it's cool. There's, I don't know if you heard, uh, uh, you know, Bill, uh, from Mastodon's a pal of mine and he recently sent me a cover they did of just another victim with uh, yeah. a bunch of people. And, um, I was totally flattered. And also uh, it was kind of funny, funny because they, they played the riff wrong. And I was like, Oh, my, my band got together for rehearsal. And first thing Kyle said, he's like, what the fuck? They fucked up the riff. And I go, and then Dan was like, you think of like six, seven guys and someone would notice. <laughs> don't say, no, maybe don't put that in. I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, but it's, it's, it kind of speaks to that thing about helmet that is so um, sneaky and deceptive that, people it sounds simple people think it's simple and but nobody can play it you know and um uh, you know tm stevens i've told the story a million times because i'm very proud uh to be friendly with him and he's a massive bass player i love pretenders i love james brown miles the people he's played with and he came on our bus and he, he's seen helmet several times and he said man he's like helmet's like a big bowl of ice cream and you dig in and there's spinach inside you know and non musicians often don't get it my my manager's wife sent me this uh, video of a guy talking about um in, you know super influential bands and it was a, 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 a between he, he's saying helmet was probably more influential than soundgarden soundgarden had more of a, a, a black sabbath template i guess to what for, to what they were doing and uh, came from that but helmet helmet though the music is simple and I, it's just like again every time someone tries to sit in with us, it's they, they can't play the songs. And, uh, and I love that. I love that. It's like, wait, this is not in four, four. I'm like, that's true. Yeah. But it feels like four, four, doesn't it? <laughs> so, right. Yeah. <laughs> that's so funny. And it's like, I feel the same way about ZZ top and ACDC. Everybody thinks, Oh, it's so simple. It's like, 
but nobody can play it. <laughs> yeah. You're like, there, there, there's a reason there, are, there are layers. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, the last thing I want to hit on was the fact that, um, I, I'm personally impressed by the fact that, uh, you, you know, a, a, as a person, like clearly in the music industry and in, in the creative pursuits, there are many opportunities, uh, from a sort of off-ramp perspective to either get jaded or you're just kind of, you know, sick of it. And clearly, like you were talking about originally the process of, you know, playing your instrument and, you know, finding out new layers and textures you can add on that, like clearly keeps you, you know, engaged and invigorated. Um, what, you know, why do you still care? I know that's a real simple question, but like, you know, is it just the fact of, Hey, I, I, I have not reached the end of my, um, I guess, creative rope from a <laughs> guitar sound perspective or be able to, to, um, you know, figure out different ways to express myself there. Well, one one of the things we talked about early on um, uh, was was sort of the the foundation, the musical foundation, and the work ethic, and and being having like a, a, a I'm I'm in love with the process, not in love with the results. I um, I mean, if you came in my living room right here, I've got I'm going to open I've got this open to Ted Green um, chord chemistry book, page twenty. I'm looking at um, you know, add nine chords, major add nine chords. Um, and then, um, and then it adds six nines. And I have a Bill Evans trio piano book. Cause I'm looking at some of his voicings from, um, a song, song called, uh, around midnight. And then I have some of my notes from a guy that I, 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 um, study with in New York, uh, once a year, Paul Sullivan. And then I have, what else I have my hero mentor, John stole some of his music here. Um, that is incredibly complex. And then I have, um, I've got Cannonball Rag on my uh, in my Transcribe app because I'm trying to figure out that uh, Merle Travis how he does those that that um, walking bass thing with the uh, with this the, the lead thing pull a hammer on pull off thing and um, so and you know and I'm also working on a Jobim tune right now called If You Never Come to Me uh, I can't pr- pronounce Portuguese but into Passagem in again, but in the English title is if you never come to me. So I have I have a list of goals. I have a list, uh, say if I have let's say I have a hundred jazz standards memorized, which is probably you know low, but I I have a hundred jazz standards memorized because I play them, I play daily, first thing I do when I wake up in the morning. And I'm fascinated by um, by by voice leading, by common tones, things that have applied uh, uh, to the music of Helmet. Here's a here's a note, a D note, and I can play a D chord. I can play an E flat chord. I can play an E chord. I can play an F chord, and that D can stay on the top of all all those chords. That stuff fascinates me, and I love the I love the way it feels. Um, I keep copious notes. I I have like fifty notebooks because I'm still fascinated by by TV commercials and movies and billboards and, um, and, and now social media people's obsession with, with me, 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 I look, I am, here's not the Eiffel tower. Here's me in front of the Eiffel tower. Like here's me at this baseball game. Here's right. me. And these things are still, you know, still pertinent. I wrote driving nowhere after the Oklahoma city bombing, but before September 11th, and that's come been so uh, much woven into the fabric of our nation. The lounge chair, um, the, the angry you know white guy in his lounge chair, getting all his information from some quote unquote news 
broadcast. So there are things to there are there are things that I've commented, you know, made, uh, chosen, you know, to, to be part of my commentary or observations. I'm not a political standing on a soapbox. I'm not trying to you know press force any political view down anyone's throat because I'm an artist. I'm a writer. I'm doing I'm doing that. I still have a stack of books next to my bed. I actually. I have Lolita. I've never read it. My FBI, one of my best friends who's read everything. Um, he said, you have to read this book. It's incredible. And I also have, um, uh, you know, the new Seth Rogen book. And I got um, the, you know, the John Cleese uh, cheerful guide on uh, what is it? A cheerful guide on creativity. So there, there are things that are exciting and interesting to me. Um, and I'm still, you know, I'm still like doing these lessons, um, seeing, having having to formulate um a system for someone that doesn't have 40 years of guitar experience okay you've been playing guitar 30 years but you never learned how to harmonize a c major scale how can i make that clear and show you how useful it is and that you know uh, uh, the chord tones the arpeggios are you know let me tell you how it will be an A minor triad sung over a D7 chord. There's George Harrison. Well, what, what do we do in jazz? We put a two chord in front of a five chord all the time. And that's what George is doing. Probably didn't know that that's exactly what it was, but he might have because those guys had a great harmonic, you know, knowledge, obviously, and used really cool chords as they progressed. Uh, and uh, I don't know. I just... I, I, I ne it never, I never run out of things to, to work on and be excited about, you know, I heard Beethoven's fourth symphony. I had a long drive today and, uh, 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 the four and four cent, I couldn't, couldn't, uh, get out of the car till it ended. You know, Cause it's, right. I've heard it 150 times and it still blows my mind. It just still blows my mind. And I've been, been to three of his houses uh, been, I've been to three of Beethoven's residences, uh, uh, the house in Baden and two apartments, the Pas uh, Pasqualiti house and then the Heiligenstadt uh, apartment. Uh, I've been to Mozart's apartment three times. It's the only existing Mozart thing. I've been to Bartok's house and his grave and Mozart's grave. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I take I, I get excited about being being part of this um this history of of you know people passing on you know music you know the things the people that inspired us whether it's marvin gay or beethoven or you know charlie parker or um you know uh, angus and malcolm you know and um i think the people that that never lose their their enthusiasm they've always made it about music and always always seeking my friend mike watt who's a um, one of the kindest and smartest, coolest people I know. He, every year he sends John Coltrane birthday um, email out and we always open a dialogue for a couple of weeks. And he's been sending me, he sent me the Ben uh, Ratliff uh, article, um, which is fantastic. Seeing, a, you know, you guys, writers, I have some of my best friends are people I've met as journalists because, you know, the, the journalist passion for art, for music, for what we do, means that we share a similar, um, you know, like a, the portrait of the artist as a young man, James Joyce, or a room of one's, own, uh, you know, uh, Virginia Woolf. We share a similar, there's a similar thought process, a similar, I don't know if it's aesthetic, but compassion and understanding of the universe and the world and humans that, um, that 
is a gift. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, it's absolutely amazing. You know, I love Van Gogh. Like I, I got so choked up when I went to his place in, in Arles. Um, it's just, a, it's hit deep, man. Like that, this cat was right here. Yeah, he was right here. <laughs> yeah. No, that's well. It's just cool because your 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 passion definitely bleeds through, and I think that's what um you know realistically can influence a lot of different people in general. You know, a, a cool. ages and demographics. So it's really uh it's really cool. But yeah, thanks for hanging out, Paige. I really appreciate you letting me my ping pong all over the place. <laughs> yeah, yeah, my my pleasure, Ray. I really enjoyed it. All right, that was quite a doozy, wasn't it? Page really appreciate that. And his publicist, Tim, shout out to Tim, who brought this idea to me. And I was like, you know what? This is a really good idea, Tim. Thank you very much. So thank you very much. I, I can't say thank you enough during there, but I, I will. I will continue to say thank you. Because people that give me ideas to this show, I just, I don't know, I really appreciate it. So next week, I have one of my favorite bands from the past year, even though they've released records previous to the past year, but Alien Boy, Sonia Weber, who is in the band, uh, was one of my favorite records of last year, and uh, I was really excited to have this chat. So that's what we have next week, Sonia Weber from Alien Boy. I love to be able to paint with a wide palette of brush that I'm talking about here. Everybody from Paige Hamilton to a band that is new. It's so much fun. So that's what we got here. Until then, please be safe, everybody.